So, we're, we're on to the full this week. Um, and you can see the agenda on the screen there. These are the, the topics we're going to cover the full in. Um, and we're going to start with considering the literal nature of the events in Eden. Because there are a lot of Christians who would say that these things aren't literal. Um, perhaps not in any major denominations, but within those denominations, there are Christians who say that these things in Genesis chapter 3, that they can't be literal, they must be symbolic. And we can probably understand that to some extent, because a talking serpent, some fiery cherubims that have fiery swords and guard the way to the Garden of Eden, they're all quite strange things to believe, aren't they? But we do have to believe them. And uh, if you just take a look in your workbooks, at page 24, that's the first page of section 3, it uh, shows us this verse in the second book of Corinthians. 24. Yeah, page 24 in our course notes. And it takes us to the second book of Corinthians, and chapter 11 and verse 3. And here it's the Apostle Paul, and he's writing about the events of Genesis chapter 3 in the New Testament. Um, so Genesis 11 and verse 3, sorry, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, he says, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity in Christ. So he's worried for these believers in the Ecclesia at Corinth. He's worried that they might be taken away from the truth of the gospel. And really, just the point we're trying to make from that verse is, the Apostle Paul is quoting the events of Genesis as if they actually happened, because they did. So that's really the introduction to what we're going to consider tonight. That they are literal events. There really was a serpent who could talk. And uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about those events. So uh, we do have to believe that. So let's go on then to talk about this section, A Command Disobeyed. And that's going to take us to Genesis chapter 2. So perhaps we could all turn there in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. So last week, um, we kind of finished off in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 2. And we saw how that God um, created Adam. And it says that man became a living soul there in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 2. And we looked at how that really means a living being. And man became a living being. Um, and then, well sorry, that's verse 7 even. And then we come on to verse 8 of Genesis chapter 2. And we can see there that God placed man in Eden. And uh, we put this up on the screen there. This is a map showing uh, the area of the Middle East. Um, and we can recognise some of the names on the map there. If we go down to verse, uh, verse 14, it talks about the river Euphrates, just at the end of verse 14 there. And then at the start of the verse, it talks about the river Hiddekel. And it says that these were rivers that flowed through the Garden of Eden. And if we look there on the map, we can see the, the Euphrates River that runs down. It might be quite hard to see, um, Tom, but it runs down from Turkey down to the Persian Gulf. And then the Tigris River, that's also on the map. That joins on the east side, doesn't it? Yeah, it's on the east side. Yeah. And uh, that, that Tigris River is another name for the Hidical River. So th those, those help us to find an approximate location for the Garden of Eden, somewhere in that area which is now modern-day Iraq. But if you're thinking of doing an Indiana Jones and trying to find the Garden of Eden for yourself today, I'm afraid to disappoint you, Don't you won't it. be able to do it. Don't and can we, can we think why? What, what major catastrophic worldwide event has happened since the Garden of Eden? The flood. The flood, yeah, that's it, exactly it, Tom. So it seems at the end of Genesis 3, when, when God cast out Adam and Eve from the Garden, he placed these cherubim to stop them getting back to the Garden of Eden. So the Garden of Eden did remain for some time. But we, would, uh, we can say that likely it was after the flood, when the flood covered the earth and everything as it was known was destroyed. It seems that the Garden of Eden probably disappeared then. Um, so that's why we can't find the Garden of Eden today. So let's come on to verse 9 then of Genesis chapter 2, um, where we read of these two trees that God creates. So in verse 9 we can see 
that God made um, every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are those two trees on the screen. And then if we come down to verses 16 and 17, we see that he gives a command. It says in those verses that he commanded man that they could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if they ate of that, they would die. And here we learn quite an important principle about God. You see, God did not create man and the earth. He did not create robots who had to serve him because they just had to. That's not how God works. God gave man free will. And that's seen in this choice which he gives man. He gives him a choice. Do you want to obey me and do what I say? Or do you want to disobey me and choose to eat of this tree which I've commanded you not to? So he sets before mankind a choice. And this choice is found throughout the Bible. Um, there's a verse there in your notes. Um, it takes you to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. And we won't look at it for time this evening. But that is where Moses is talking to the children of Israel. And he says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you might live. So that's the same choice, isn't it? Do we choose to follow God's commands to obey him? Or do we choose to disobey him? Because that will lead to death. And of course, later on in the Bible, this idea of disobeying God is defined as sin. Um, so, verse 17, it says there, In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And if you look in your margin there, um, and it's got a number one there, next to you shall surely die, and then in the margin, if you go down to verse 22, it says, number one, literally, it means dying, you shall die. And that's an important thing to think about because when Adam and Eve disobeyed and they ate of the fruit which they were commanded not to, they didn't die immediately, did they? No, they were thrown out of the garden and then they, they died at a later time, of old age. So that phrase, in dying you shall die, it seems to be describing the process of death. So after they disobeyed God, this kind of corruption, this process of death was introduced into the world and they began to die. But they didn't die immediately like it kind of seems upon a first reading. So that's just an example of how we can use our margins again to uh, try and understand what we're reading. So let's look then at why it was that Eve ate of the fruit. This is uh, moving on to chapter 3 now, where we find Eve disobeying, disobeying God's command. Um... <coughs> I suppose when we have this choice of life or death, it seems quite obvious, doesn't it? Well, obviously we're going to choose life. That's the sensible thing to choose. But just like Eve, it seems easy to think about those things when it's a black and white choice. But when we're in the moment, things get a lot more complicated, don't it? When we feel those temptations to disobey God, then it's not quite such a black and white matter, is it? It's a lot easier to do things wrong. And there are three reasons which the chapter gives us in verse 6 of chapter 3. There are three reasons why Eve ate of that fruit which, which she was commanded not to. Um, can anyone just kind of read through that verse and, and maybe shout out those reasons? So I'd say the first one is probably she saw that the tree was good for food. It was edible food. It, it was tasty. That was one of the reasons why she wanted to eat of it. Um, it. Pleasant to the eyes. Pleasant to the eyes, exactly. It looked good. So she temptation. wanted to eat it. It is temptation, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, just the third reason it says in the verse there, it's a tree desirable to make one wise. Somehow this fruit was going to make her wise. And she wanted to be like that. These were the three kind of temptations that he faced. I just wanted to notice those words in verse 6, where it says the woman saw that the tree was good. Huh. She saw the tree was good. Who was it in chapter 1 who saw things were good? The Lord himself. God. Hmm. And the, um, it says that God saw, God created the light, and he saw that it was good. <clears throat> it says that on each of those days of creation, 
well, apart from one actually, that he saw it was good. Remember in chapter one, it was God who said things were good. And he specifically said that you're not to eat of this tree of good and evil. He's told her not to do that. And, and so when Eve says, well, the tree is good for food, she is taking on God's role. She's saying what she thinks should be good. And that, that's something we can do as well, isn't it? When we face temptations in our lives, things we know we shouldn't be doing, we can often try to justify them, can't we? We say, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's not that bad. Surely God doesn't mean it when he says it. Surely he doesn't mean it quite like that. It does look good. These are the kind of things we say to justify things when we're thinking of doing things wrong. But the important point here is that if God has said something is wrong, then it's not up to us to say otherwise. So we come on to the serpent thinking. There's on the screen there three statements that the serpent makes. And it's interesting that two of those things, which a serpent says, are actually true. It's only one of those statements which is false. So he says that they would not die. That was false, because God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall die. He says their eyes would be opened. That was actually true. It's in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, after they ate of the fruit, the eyes of both of them were opened. And then the third statement, they would be as gods, knowing good and evil. Again, that was actually true. Once they ate of the fruit, they understood good and evil. That's verse 22 of chapter 3. So it's interesting, isn't it? That it's a mix of truth and falsehood. So these are all the things which are coming together, and it's this that makes Eve eat of that fruit. There's things about it which look good, it looks tasty, and then the serpent as well, saying the, these statements, some of which are true, some of which are false. It all tempts her to make that decision to sin against God. So Eve eats the fruit, and I just wanted to notice at the end of verse 6, she also gave to her husband with her and um, in the margin of some bibles it will say she gave to her husband who was beside her and that's an important point because it wasn't just eve who was there and ate of the fruit adam was with her and that's why curses are given to adam as well because he was also responsible for this sin so we look at the curses then and um, the uh, what um what's the word the uh, results of uh, this um, disobedience against God. So the curses are, well, they're, they're from um, verse 14, where God puts these curses upon the serpent. He's cursed above all beasts, it says. He's to crawl on his belly and eat dust, just like serpents do to this day. And there is to be this enmity with the woman. And we'll come to look at that later on in uh, our session this evening. There are then curses on Eve. She's to have sorrow in childbirth. Again, something we see to this day. And there's to be this certain submission to her husband. And then there are curses on Adam. Um, the ground is to bring forth thorns and thistles. And eventually he is to die. He's to return to the dust from which he was made. And then the very final part of uh, the results of their sin is that Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. We see that right at the end of chapter 3. Um, chapter 3 and verse 22, God says, uh, he sends him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. There in verse 23. And when we're given a reason, it says, lest he put forth his hand in verse 22 and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God had to get them out of the Garden of Eden so that they couldn't take of the fruit of the tree of life. Because you see, God didn't want Sinners. He didn't want sinners who could live forever. That would have been a terrible world to live in if he had these immortal sinners. So God had to expel them from the Garden of Eden. And it says that he placed these cherubim with flaming swords to keep the way to the tree of life. And now man is expelled from the Garden of Eden. Well, we're going to pass on to Jonathan next to spend some time thinking about the serpent and exactly who or what the serpent really was. So, over to you, Jonathan. Uh, so, yes, we're going to consider just briefly then um, the idea of this serpent. We've obviously had him introduced in chapter 3, 
chapter 3 and verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And, and perhaps sometimes we can start thinking about this serpent um, being part of perhaps that, that supernatural aspect, part of the, the devil, a, a Satan. Um, and it's worth exploring what actually the serpent was or perhaps what he represents because we would suggest that he perhaps isn't working with a, with a supernatural being like a devil, for example. Because when we read in Genesis 3, as we said, 3 and verse 1, he was more subtle than any beast of the field. Now, now that picks up the language of chapter 2 and verse 20, if you remember, where it says, Adam gave names to all cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. So this really was just another, if you like, beast of the field that the Lord God had, had made. God had created, if you like, this serpent along with the other beasts of the field. It was part of the creative work. He was listed as one of those beasts of the field of the day six of creation. And God didn't create the serpent as a force for good or for evil. It was just a creation. But we could say that it was part of the creation which was described in chapter one, the last verse of chapter one, as being very good. And of course, the point of all this being, we then have the words of James. Good, it's good to know. It's reassuring that it works. In James in chapter 1, where we read these powerful words that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because we have a temptation right before us. But it's emphasising the point that it's the serpent that was doing the tempting. I suppose in a sense, God was in a, in a sense doing the tempting because he sent the serpent, created the serpent. But you see the point, it was the serpent. It was the serpent who was using this language. The serpent that could speak but was not created with the same capacity of, as mankind. It simply saw what was before Adam and Eve and spoke. And as Sam said earlier on, actually... Two of the things that were said were true. It was just that aspect about the dying that was false. And, and so we read then that the serpent did uh, tempt Eve and they partook of the fruit there in Genesis in chapter 3. So we read of the temptation of the serpent being this beast of the field. And just then to explore this a little bit more, it takes us into this avenue of, well, what does Scripture speak to us about the, the devil and, and Satan? What else do we read when we search the Scriptures? What are we told about it? Does it convey this idea of a supernatural being that often is associated with the idea of hell, depicted as a, a red being with horns and well, I'll come on to it in a moment, actually, uh, because actually, first of all, this is the point, isn't it? That what Adam and Eve did, it's led to all mankind as a result to have that sin nature yeah. and to die. And that's why we pick up verses like this in Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we are all in that position as a consequence of what takes place in this very chapter. But... Hopefully, we'll touch on this Satan, this adversary. So we have a, a bit of Hebrew Arabic there, oh. being the idea of an, an enemy, an adversary being an opponent. So when you touched on that example, Tom, First Chronicles 21 verse 1, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel, mm. you were absolutely right when you said we have a corresponding passage. 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1. Yeah. And, and we parallel that with the record of 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1. We're on page 26, Tom. 
24 and verse 1. It is on the notes. In the book? Yeah. And on that passage, I mean, the colours really help to highlight it. So you've got, and Satan stood up, 1 Chronicles 21, and again the anger of the Lord was kindled. And so actually what we can do is we can start comparing the scripture there and saying in this instance that the Lord himself was the adversary. Which immediately strikes a bit of controversy, doesn't it, in our minds? How can the Lord be the adversary? And I think the answer is he was being the enemy to the Israel at this time. He was being that to them because of what Israel were being like as a people to him. And we know that God was displeased so often with his people as an example. And actually then, if you think about it in that context, he was in many aspects an enemy to the Israelites. He was an adversary to them. Yes, he was a father to them. And he chastened them as a child. Read of that through the Old Testament prophets. But when you see it in this case as well, you've got an example of how the Lord himself would be an adversary to the people. Just an interesting one to think about, isn't it? When you read of a Satan. And then you've got other verses. As you said, Tom, you've got devil that's predominantly then used in the New Testament, don't you? But we also have this one of Satan. The Lord Jesus himself speaking to Peter. Mm. And again, I think the context is really important in this passage. Because when you read it, the Lord Jesus, we read, shows to his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He is showing to them this was a prophecy that needed fulfilling. It was the word must be fulfilled. And it's when Peter says and begins to rebuke him, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. That's when the Lord Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offence to me. It's only when Peter is denying the purpose of God that we then have this adversary. Now, we wouldn't say in this case that Peter was being a, a, the Satan or interchange the word a devil, would we? He is rejecting the purpose of God in that Jesus needed to die and be raised again on the third day, the miracle of resurrection. And that's how he was being an adversary to the Lord Jesus at that time. But I think fundamentally, as we have touched upon with the idea of sin passing upon all people, that really is uh, what the devil speaks about to us in the scripture. It is a personification so often in scripture, of human nature, of our flesh. And this is brought out so often with the work of the Lord Jesus. Think of a couple of verses here from Hebrews. Now, one makes it seem like the devil is a real being, where it says that through death he, Jesus, might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And so you start reading verses like that, and you think, well, there must be a devil then. If it states it plainly that he's destroyed the power of death, that is the devil. But when you correspond it with words like this, but now in the end of the world hath he, Jesus, appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, we realise that the devil is really the sin. It's the power of death. Um, and then often, if you're thinking about devil and demons, for example, you think of them also in the New Testament, how Jesus cured devils and demons. Um, they're often used of people who might also have a mental illness in the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to go into detail. I shouldn't mention this off the cuff, should I? But on the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast, Brother Barnaby had a, a talk that was on there, I think this week or last week, and he summed it up perfectly, if I can recommend it after if you don't follow it, um, where he talks about how some of these um, 
the devil, the casting out and the miracles can quite easily be related to a mental illness that might be going on as well. Uh, it's an interesting one, I know, and I would recommend that as a listen. I, I just wanted to finish with just that verse. In fact, I think it might be good for us to turn to it because we started with looking at the verse in James in chapter 1. Can we just finish this section by looking at James in chapter 1? Because it's a comment on um, sin and temptation. James 1 and verse 13. And I know it's in uh, the notes. Uh, can you help me out? I should, I should swap my Bible, shouldn't I? 17.10. Thank you. So actually, there's a challenge for us, I think, in these words. So we read verse 13 earlier on. But I'd like to look at verse 12 and just read on a little bit. So it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation... For when he is tried, he shall receive, and I know, realize my version is probably a bit different. He shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man, and I suppose we could also say woman in that, but every man or woman is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And that's the process that's going yeah. on. That corroborates with Romans, it? Absolutely. Yeah. All have sinned, yeah. and so on. But I think there is that challenge that for us, we know that we do sin, we do things that disobey God's commands, but there is a challenge of enduring temptation, battling the temptations that we may have ourselves in our own lives, because there is a crown of life that is promised and spoken about here. And so there is a challenge for us to go on and to endure the temptations just as these faced Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay, so thanks Jonathan for that bit about the serpent and about the devil. We now want to come and look briefly at death. Um, and we'll turn to this verse in Romans chapter 5. Let's, let's all go there to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Which is page 1599. So there it says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, who's the one man there? Adam. Adam, yeah. Just, through, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, that was the consequence of sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Verse 12. This is, yeah, verse 12. So we all die, don't we? And that's because of Adam's sins. Now we might say, well, that's unfair. Why do we die because of something that Adam did? Well, the verse doesn't allow us to say that, does it? Because at the end it says, thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. All of us, all of mankind, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, have disobeyed God in some way. And therefore, we all die. So I think we're left in a pretty grim situation, aren't we, from Genesis chapter 3, of sin and death, a cycle which seems never-ending. But in Genesis chapter 3, we do find what we might call an obscure promise. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So let, let's turn there now. We're right back to the start of the Bible. Could somebody read that for me? Would that yeah. be all right? Yeah. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Thanks, Rod. So, enmity. 
If we were to look that up in our concordance, it would tell us that it can mean hatred or hostility. Okay? So the idea of enmity is that of hostility, of hatred. And who is this enmity between? Uh, not quite. Uh, so, verse, yeah, the serpent. So, so between you and the woman. And uh, if we follow the context, it's in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent. Ah, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> we should have read it together, I suppose, really. But yeah, so God is speaking to the serpent and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. So the enmity is between the serpent and the woman. And who else? It says later on in the verse, it, it's between someone else as well. Your seed and her seed. Yeah, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Okay. Um, what, what does seed mean? Anyone throw out a suggestion? Offspring, yeah, descendants. So for the woman, well, we can think about the descendants of Eve. That's really all of, all of mankind. The descendants of the serpent, well, we're probably going to have to say can't quite be literal, can it? It can't really be talking about the descendants of that snake. We're not talking about going to the zoo and, and looking at those snakes there. It must be something a little bit different, and perhaps we have to think about what that could represent. Well, we're going to go to three, three verses. Three helpful references, which are on page 29 in your workbooks. But I think it's best to turn up the first one, certainly, in your Bibles. So John chapter 8 and verse 44. And we'll see if we can get an idea of who these, these parties are. Who is the serpent? Who is the seed of the serpent? John, 8. John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8 and verse 44. Um, and perhaps somebody could read that again for me. Verse 44. Verse 44. Now read it. You are your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Yeah, thanks for that, Sean. So the context of this verse is Jesus talking to the Jews. Pharisees, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's not just any Jews. It makes the point, um, I can't, it's not popping out to me, but it, it says that these are the Jews who are seeking to kill Jesus. Yeah, the scribes and the Pharisees. So the, the, the Jews who were seeking to kill Jesus, this is who Jesus was talking about. And um, yeah, so we notice that phrase in verse 44. It's, Jesus says to them, your father, he was a murderer from the beginning. The beginning, that's, that's Genesis, isn't it? So what we start to see is that Jesus is talking about the events in Genesis chapter Three, what the serpent said led to death, didn't it? So I think we can say that the serpent was, in a sense, a murderer. And then we notice that word devil as well. He, you, you're of your father, the devil. And we've looked with Jonathan about how that, that word devil um, means an adversary. This is what the serpent was to Eve. It was an, an adversary. It tempted her to do wrong. And then it also goes on to say in verse 44, it talks about this, the serpent, the, the devil, and it says that he was a murderer and does not stand in truth because there was no truth in him. It says that he was a liar, which we've seen when, when we read of those three statements he made, and one of those was a lie. The serpent told lies. And, uh, of course, what the lies that the serpent told, they led to death. So perhaps we could summarise that. The serpent represents lies and death. Okay, so now the seed of the serpent. That's really in the same verse, isn't it? Verse 44, you are of your father, 
the devil. Those Jews who sought to kill Jesus were the offspring. Symbolically, they were the offspring of this serpent. But of course, it's not just speaking about those Jews who killed Jesus, but really about all of those who choose to follow that mindset of the serpent, to follow that, that mindset of not listening to God, but following lies. So we might summarise that as the seed of the serpent, those who follow lies and death. Well, we need to think back to Genesis chapter 3 next. Um, probably no need to turn there, as we've already been there. Um, you can if you want, and, and the verse is also in your workbooks on page 29. We've seen that the serpent, he spoke lies. Well, what about the woman? What did the woman speak? It says in, in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 3, The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the, tree, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. So the woman spoke the truth. When faced with the serpent who spoke lies, the woman spoke the truth. She repeated what God had said. So perhaps we summarise the woman as truth. She represents truth. And then the seed of the woman, what does that represent? Um, there's a reference there in, in your workbooks. It's to Luke chapter 1, and it's about the, um, the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, would somebody read that for me, Luke chapter 1, maybe just from the workbook? And the angel answered and said unto Mary, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Yeah, thanks for that. So we've said already that all, all of humanity really is of the seed of the woman. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. But the Lord Jesus Christ is a very special seed of the woman, isn't he? Because he wasn't just the seed of, of Adam and Eve, but he was born of God. He was son of God and son of man. So the Lord Jesus Christ is this unique seed of the woman, this unique descendant of Adam and Eve. And there are lots of other verses we could look at. It's a theme that goes right through the whole Bible about tracking this seed, something we'll perhaps have to do another time. But it is specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have then these four parties almost in two halves. And it says that there is going to be this enmity, this hatred between truth and lies and between the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are following lies, following the thinking of the serpent. And we can see that in the scribes and the Pharisees, can't we? There was an enmity between them and the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately they put him to death. And more than that, it's between all of those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are choosing to disobey God, those who are following the thinking of the serpent. So that's the first part of Genesis 3 and verse 15. And the second part, which you can see on the verse, on the screen there, or in your Bibles, the second part of the verse says, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Who is it referring to? Whenever we use it, it always refers to somebody we've already mentioned, doesn't it? What, what does that mean? Hatred or hostility. Okay. So I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. The last thing talked about was the seed of the woman, her seed. And then he says it. So it refers to the seed of the woman. It, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head. Who is thy? Serpent. The serpent. He's talking to the serpent. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent in the head. And thou, who's that? That is it you. It's you, yeah. So the serpent again, talking to the serpent. You shall bruise his heel. Who's his? Man, man, 
Well, what we've heard, it shall bruise thy heel, the seed of the woman shall bruise um, the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. It suggests that it's talking about the seed of the woman again. But it is interesting, isn't it, that it uses his instead of it. But we've already looked how the seed of the woman refers specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can see why it would use this, this masculine word, his, because it is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. The serpent bruises the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the heel. So we see this play out then in the New Testament. Sin and death wounds the Lord Jesus Christ, but not fatally. It's a bruise in the heel. It hurts if you bruise your heel, but it's not the end of life, is it? It's just a temporary wound. That's what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was wounded on the cross. He was put to death. He did die, but he was raised to life. It wasn't a fatal um, wound. The Lord Jesus Christ wounds sin and death, and it is fatal. The Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice put an end to sin and death. He provided a way out of sin and death. There is a verse, we won't turn there, there's a verse in your workbooks. It's, it's Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. And actually we've already looked at it with Jonathan. But there it says that Jesus destroyed him that had the power of sin and death. That is the devil. Jesus destroyed sin because of his sacrifice on the cross. So this is what this one simple verse in Genesis 3.15 is talking about. It's pointing right forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he did in his sacrifice. So it's an incredible thing to think about. And there is a, a verse in Romans 5 in your workbooks there that says, Therefore, as by the offence of one, that's talking about Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So Adam brought sin into the world, and the Lord Jesus Christ provided a way out, an, an end to the ways of sin. So we're going to pass over to Jonathan now to uh, really start to bring things to a close for us. Uh, very much so, and it's beautiful how scripture does this. So we're going to look at then how, through the Lord Jesus, this way is preserved. So if you, if you would, uh, we're just going to look at that last verse of Genesis in chapter 3. It is in your notes, and we will follow it, but it's in Genesis chapter 3 that following those consequences given to Adam and Eve, we read, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And it's interesting, that use of the word keep, because in the notes that you have, it's used in two senses. One was to keep to guard or as a barrier so that they couldn't get back in to partake of that tree of life. But there was another sense. And you see it in the Hebrew, how it's used as the word to preserve. That that tree of life would still exist. There would still be a root. And you see a use of that word preserve It's in Psalm 37. Would someone mind reading that from the notes? It's in the box. Psalm 37, verse 28. For the Lord loveth judgment, forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Interesting choice of language there, isn't it, as well? Psalm 37, verse 28. That word keep is the word preserve from the Hebrew. And you've got the idea of the seed being cut off, but the saints being preserved. And that sort of links together some of our thoughts from this evening. Sam spoke about the seed, the offspring of the Lord Jesus in Christ. 
And then we have the opposite, the seed of the serpent, who shall be cut off, who will die. And, and so we start to see that although, yes, that garden was destroyed, and we've suggested perhaps that was through the, the flood, actually the spiritual way to that tree of life has actually been left open for believers through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death, that way, in a sense, has been preserved, that we can partake of a tree of life. And actually then, the Bible goes on to show the reverse of the curse that was laid out in the garden. And here are some examples. Um, so, for example, the curse says there would be sorrow in childbirth. That's in Genesis 3 and verse 16. It says unto the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Now, I'm not going to read out the verses, but if you want to look these up in your own time, please do afterwards. There is a reversal of there being sorrow in conception. Isaiah 65 verse 23. The idea of the woman, so it's in, at the end of verse 16, uh, in sorrow that, and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. In Luke 20, it speaks of an equality in the age to come. Again, look Luke 20 up in your own time. Luke 20, verses 34 to 36. And, and also... There is a cursing on the ground. Verse 17. At the end of verse 17. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And there is a reversal of the curse of the ground. In Psalm 72 and verse 16. But, but the one that I would like us to turn to. And this is how scripture I think is beautiful. Because you have a mirror from the first book of the Bible to our last book of the Bible. Because in Genesis 1, we see the use of the tree of life. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we read also of the tree of life. But before we get there, let's, if you would, go to Revelation 21. I think it might be on the screen. And it will be in your notes as well. Uh, let's go to Revelation 21, though. I think. Revelation 21. And at verse 4. Is anyone else there? Yeah. Would you mind? Yeah. Thank you. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So we have a pre-kingdom vision here in Revelation, but that idea of death... Being removed is there. Revelation 21, there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. What a hope that is. A reversal of the curse here in the garden. And then we also have the reference in, in Revelation 22. This is where we read of the tree of life. I would like to read this one. So Revelation 22, a vision again of heavenly Jerusalem, it says. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. The tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. Now this isn't easy language, Revelation and these visions. But you can see the connections here at the last book of the Bible. We have the tree of life, healing for nations. There shall be no more curse. There is a reversal of the process of Genesis in chapter 3. There is so much more that could be said about Revelation and what's going on there. But it's, uh, it's complicated enough. So I think just let's make the links and, and let's read that in our own time if we wish. So, so let's just summarise then some of the things that we have considered tonight. What happened in the garden? Well, we saw, didn't we, 
there was disobedience. Man was created, and woman, in a good state, and it depended, it was conditional on their obedience towards God and God's laws. But they listened to the voice of the serpent, and so began that process of dying. Dying, thou shalt die. Were there serious implications? And the answer is yes. The consequences we've read of. That power of sin has passed upon all of us. For all have sinned. And we are only worthy of death because of the sin that we do. That same sin that's been passed on from Adam and Eve. Was there anyone else to blame? Well, in a sense, there may be. But it wasn't a real devil, as we've tried to show. It was the temptation from within. Question. Question mark. But the challenge for us is to strive to serve and to follow God by reading his commands. That we endure temptation, as we saw in James in chapter 1. And receive the crown of life if we endure and strive to follow the Father and the God as best we can but we are left with a hope man isn't left without a hope Sam showed us how through the Lord Jesus through his sacrifice the seed there is hope the one who had the power to destroy sin the power of sin and so through him the last Adam he has broken down that barrier that we can go in and in a sense partake of the tree of life and our hope that we wait for is the return of the Lord Jesus and those kingdom visions of Revelation 21 where death will be no more and the kingdom will be established on this earth.